0: Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I'm your host, Tim Schigel, managing partner of Refinery Ventures. In this episode, we're talking with Ashish Dalal, co founder and CEO of what you probably know as ParkWiz, now Arrive Mobility, a Chicago based on demand parking app that matches drivers with open parking spots everywhere from downtown garages to ballpark neighborhoods. In this episode, we're going to dive into some of the myths about startups. How long does it take to grow a successful startup? In this case, Parkwood's journey took 10 years and the first five years were bootstrapped with a two-person team to get to that product market fit. Ashish shares with us many lessons learned along the way from having a term sheet pulled during their first attempt at raising venture dollars to understanding the proper structure for boards. The biggest theme or so what I hope you can take away from this conversation is that sometimes what seems as a failure... Not being able to raise venture capital is actually the best thing for your business long term, making you reevaluate and refocus the idea to one that can work even better than you imagined. Ashish, welcome to Fast Frontiers. This is we're going to have so much fun talking today. I'm really excited about having this conversation.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Tim, and I appreciate it.
0: So, yeah, we want to explore here what it means to be an entrepreneur, what it means to start and grow a company like you did with ParkWiz. it's okay if I still use that name because that's the name I knew. so we can we'll, we'll talk through that. I also want to talk about you know you're in Chicago so we're going to talk a little bit about midwest Chicago, what it means to be an entrepreneur venture back uh, in this region and then finally some lessons learned so um, so first of all let's just go through the if we can love to just talk through kind of the history and timeline and now there's a few things. I'd love to dig deeper into, on that to maybe, you know, take on some myths about startups and what it takes and how long it takes. So let's start with a little a little history. And uh, first of all, you know, the number one question is always,
1: why did you start the company? First of all, thanks again for having me, Tim. And you know, I'd say that you know most people who know me would say that I'm a fairly practical person. But but the truth is is that you know, and I think my parents would double down on this statement is that growing up, I was always that kid who had his head in the clouds and where I would see the possible in the impossible. And I've always been obsessed with getting from point A to point B in the most efficient way. So, you know, getting around, getting here to there was always something that was a pain point for me. You know, we used to go to India as a kid every few years during our our winter vacations. As much as I loved being and seeing with family and and hanging out with them. I hated, absolutely hated the trip. I would be, you'd be sitting on a 22 hour flight as a 10 year old kid, nothing to do. You're bored out of your mind. I mean, remember this is the, you know, late eighties. So there's no technology to what we have today to be able to pass the time. And so the boredom that I had was so intense that it literally took away from any fun that I had. It took me a day or two just to acclimate. You know, naturally, this was something that got me fascinated with travel and mobility. Uh, but I then went to you know uh, to college, and the idea of inefficiencies came again when I was at Northwestern. And we would go to you know the football games on on Saturday uh, Saturday mornings. I was lucky enough to be friends with someone who had a car, so we were able to drive. And we were, of course, those naive you know sophomores who would get up to go tailgating but not get to the stadium until like just after all the parking was sold out so we pull up to the stadium there's literally no parking around Um, and so we actually ended up pulling up on these side streets parked at a family's house a little girl literally held up a sign that said park here for ten dollars and that was sort of where the light bulb went off for me you know you sort of think about inefficiencies traveling getting to in place and then this idea of of Parking on game days. Still didn't even start. ParkWiz in college. It took me a few corporate jobs to realize my calling. But in 2007, that's when I made the plunge. And you know, interestingly, that actually isn't that. Sto- that last story wasn't the first iteration of ParkWiz. Um, we actually started as a hardware company, uh, building these r- these moats. And when I say moats, uh, when I say we, my co-founder and I, John, who I, you know, finding him in and of itself was a challenge. But building these moats, these hardware devices that would sit into the real-time, sit as a, a device under parking meters. And for a variety of reasons, we decided we didn't want to be a hardware company, which we eventually pivoted to V2 um, to become what ParkWiz truly was. But that was sort of the nutshell of how ParkWiz
0: got started. So, so tell us more about how you found John and decided to have him be your co-founder.
1: Yeah, so... I had made the personal choice right before I got married, which any aspiring entrepreneurs who are looking to find a spouse who doesn't necessarily come from the entrepreneurial background, I would make sure you you know set those expectations a little sooner than I did because I sort of uh, spurred it on right before we were right after we got engaged and right before our marriage or getting married. So you know, it was some interesting conversations, but what ended up happening is when she was actually finishing up law school in Boston, and I was working at IBM at the time, doing some consulting work. And I, this idea, I had come across, uh, she and I had talked a lot about pain points, things that were bothering her. And for her, getting to and from the train station to uh, her school, she was at Boston University, was extremely difficult, especially on game days, especially on game days where the Red Sox were playing, because Fenway Park was right by I said, well, maybe there's something here. We decided not to do it in the on the the T. The T is the public transportation because there was a lot of litigation that I was worried about from IP I, IP. She was taking IP classes at the time. So I got really scared with regards to lawsuits, even though I knew nothing about them. I, I knew I didn't want to get sued. And so I moved towards when she would drive to actual when she actually would drive to school, she couldn't find a parking spot because on game day, even though she actually had a parking permit they would actually give away her spot to Red Sox fans. And so that was sort of the genesis of saying, hmm, before you reach your destination, wouldn't it be great if you knew where you could park? Wouldn't it be great if you actually could have a, spa- a space guarantee? No different than you do on an airline at the time, no different than a hotel, uh, movies. Uh, and so I was like, parking could be that next great frontier. And so I started writing, you know, all these ideas down, not on a back of a napkin, but close enough, ended up getting the technology section. And I started researching all the different techniques, uh, technologies that we could use to sort of build this technology. And I came across a paper, had a professor who had written some really interesting things on wireless ad hoc networks. And I just literally cold called him. And I said, uh, Professor Tom, his name was Tom Little. I said, Professor Tom. Uh, any chance that we could meet up and I could be interested in commercializing your, your your paper? And he said, come on in. So I flew in, met up with him. He happened to be literally at the same university as my wife was finishing up law school. So I said, there must be something here. Uh, the, 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 the 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 fate of the world is, is lying in these stories. And so I, 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 I jumped at it. And he said he had no intent on commercializing his technology, but actually would introduce me to students that could actually build the technology for me as part of their thesis project. And so the students did that. They had no idea why they were doing it, uh, but they completed it. And at the end of it, I ended up approaching all four of the students and asking them if anybody wanted to be uh, foolish enough to join me in the startup. And uh, that's where I met John, my co-founder. Very cool.
0: What was, if you can't, let's maybe just do a first high-level pass, You know, the 30,000-foot view arc of the, of the timeline and journey of the company to today. And then we'll go back and dig in some key points.
1: Yeah. So as I mentioned, we started as a hardware company. This was roughly 2007 Mm -hmm. and we made a hard pivot when we realized one, we needed to raise a tremendous amount of capital. I was living in Chicago. I had moved back to Chicago after I got married. Um, And then John moved back up to New York uh, where he was from. And we wanted to build sort of a remote company where he could, he could uh, do what he wanted to do, and I could do what I wanted to do. We realized that we would need to raise a tremendous amount of capital and that our target market with these sensors that we had built uh, was going to be cities. Um, and we, I had, you know, in a previous life, uh, sold to cities, and it was a, it's a slog. And so we had spent about six months building the technology in the back end, uh, when I say we, John, and we decided, you know what, this just isn't going to fly. And we took the guts of what John had built on the software side, and we said, you know what, we could use this framework to actually build, at the time, the analogy was Expedia for parking, where you could, again, have your parking in advance. And the target segment that we really were going after was events. You go to a sporting event, you paid $500 for a a couple of tickets. The last thing you want to have your event is ruined by not being able to find a parking spot. And so that was the initial thesis, and we were successful. We were able to scale it fairly quickly with very limited capital. We got fairly famous in terms of you know ESPN was calling us during the Super Bowl run. Uh, we hosted this we did the Super Bowl in Dallas, Texas in 2009. Okay, 2009. we were invited by the Super Bowl committee of the NFL because we literally had the entire Parking market in Arlington, and we still do to this day. And so they said um, we need to work with you guys. And so we were getting calls from ESPN Radio because on game day people needed parking spots. So it was a, it was a fun ride. But then we realized we wanted to target a bigger parking segment. We were getting approached by some interesting players. We knew nothing about M and A or acquisitions. We were just having fun. Uh, but eBay reached out to us at the time they had owned StubHub and they wanted to partner with us. We were intrigued by that, uh, but we also wanted to go into the larger parking market, which we felt was a greater opportunity where the everyday parking, uh, you go into the city and park was $30 billion market. Uh, and we wanted to slowly position ourselves for that, uh, for that target market. Did you Speaking of market size, did you attempt to figure out the market size for the event-based parking? We did. The the event-based side of the parking is about $2 billion. So still a very healthy parking market. And definitely uh, for for a company that wasn't uh, venture-backed, something in which we felt we had huge uh, headroom in which we could create a very viable business. But when we looked at the overall segment, we just felt that it was more intriguing and we had the ability to go after that greater uh, $30 billion market.
0: Okay. So 2007... bootstrapping, 2009, drop the hardware,
1: go to events, and then what? And so, you know, by this time, like I said, we had some interesting partners that had reached out to us, the StubHub's of the world, uh, who were interested in us from an M&A perspective, and then later from an investment perspective. And now we started seeing the greater opportunity. We had the infrastructure that we felt we could build into this broader parking market uh, from a technology perspective. And now we started getting investment calls. And Chicago, at the time, wasn't a very when I had moved here in 2007 or moved back to Chicago in 2007, it wasn't a very um, effusive market uh, from a venture perspective. Any entrepreneurs who lived here for the most part had to go to the coasts. Uh, had to truly be diehards with regards to living in Chicago. I mean, don't get me wrong; there were players, uh, and those players still exist today. But you could count on your fingers how many players. Once you talk to them, you're you're back to zero. Uh, this, was, this was rough. Well, so a couple of interesting points here. So when we actually started ParkWiz, we, I went out to try to raise capital in Chicago. So 2007, I ended up going out and trying to raise capital and we struck out. And we struck out in a way that was unique to most entrepreneurs. We struck out by actually signing a term sheet with a front fund here in Chicago who ended up pulling the term sheet. Uh, After we had signed and, you know, it was a, it was a scarring experience. It's what most entrepreneurs hopefully and luckily don't have to go through because generally once you sign a term sheet, there's usually not reasons why the term sheet would get pulled on there's unless there's something really nefarious going on with the company. And that wasn't the case with us. It was just that they had a change of heart. And that was a really discouraging moment for us. Um, It made me really think about whether I was doing the right thing. Um, But John and I said, you know, screw it. We're going to just we don't need the capital. We have a viable business here that can be bootstrapped. And we, it took me a few months to get over that, but we were able to build the business over the next couple of years. And so that was that at first initial sort of foray into the venture was in 2007, but we didn't actually raise our first round of capital until t- 2000, uh, late 2012. But when you started getting that inbound interest from investors
0: and whatnot, when you started going to the broader segment, when was that?
1: Yeah. So 2000, 2012 uh, is when sort of everything was hitting the fan with regards to commercial partners coming after okay, us okay, saying, so, "Hey, so- you know, we need. Do you, do you have an API?" I had to look to John saying, "What's an API?" And we were just at that time three people, so we didn't. Yeah, we and didn't much- scale uh, very fast. We we were the antithesis, I guess, to sort of the fast growth. We saw the opportunity, I think that was where we knew if you could push, if we could build some of these key metrics. Come of these key infrastructure pieces on the technology front, then we would, we would have the opportunity to uh, do as we please. And at the time, uh, several uh, seed funds had approached us and some, some in Chicago and some outside of Chicago. And we decided to, to move forward with a uh, Chicago uh, investor. What was your market footprint at that time? Yeah. So we were only on the event side, but at the time, I, you know, I can't, I don't know exactly, but I think we were in about 12 different major sporting venues uh, where we provided either officially or unofficially the parking market around those stadiums, about 22 other um, concert and stadiums like venues. And so, and then, and then there was a handful of other, So we had about Fifty to sixty different types of venues that we were servicing with over one hundred and fifty parking facilities that serviced those areas,
0: you had the uh, good fortune of having some good p r yep because of high That's visibility correct. events and yep. you had some decent metrics
1: yeah i mean we were we were hustling we were hustling uh, between the p r and the sales side that consumed most of my you know when I say sales side you know supply acquisition on a two-sided marketplace you've got to build the inventory and so for us for me explicitly and john did this john you know as much he's a he's a technology guy but i give him credit because when when he needed to he would you know do his hustling where he'd have to go and talk to parking operators who are not a pleasant you know generally speaking they're not a pleasant bunch if you've ever you know if you're interrupting someone's day nobody likes that but when you're interrupting a parking guy's day a parking dude uh, they're not the most of pleasant of people, and they can be very gruff around the edges, and so I give him credit for getting rejected as much as uh, as much as I did. <laughs> okay, so you you raised your first venture and then yeah, so we raised our first cap around um, around a capital, and by that point in time, we had grown to about eight to ten people, and we used the we used the the, the, the initial capital was really to prove out the thesis that we can build. Uh, and, and go deeper into this broader parking segment, what we call transient parking and so a lot of it was building the infrastructure, the technology uh, as you know going to build an event is fairly simplistic it's it 's static in nature, you know when the event begins, you know when the event ends, you know when people are coming and when they 're going uh, so that uh, the back end infrastructure is fairly simplistic when you 're talking about transient parking. There's over 100 to 200 different permutations from 20-minute parking segments all the way up to 24-hour segments, monthly parking, and then being able to accommodate a consumer who has to park at various different uh, points, let alone managing the inventory on site to make sure you don't have oversolds is infinitely more complex. And so building that back end and, and building, bringing on the right team to be able to scale it appropriately uh, was definitely a challenge. And then, of course, uh, building out the sales infrastructure team to go out and secure su- additional supply uh, was where those capital uh, dollars were going to be spent. And so uh, that's how we used that sort of first seed money. And we were successful enough to grow into uh, uh, raising our second round uh, about 18 months later.
0: Great. And then fast forward to the next major milestones, Acquire and where you are today.
1: Yeah. So, you know, by the time we, you know, now we're into 2015, there was a handful of companies that were doing similar and we wanted to enter the New York parking market and the New York parking market was the biggest parking market. And so for us, you know, you could throw a bunch of dollars at the problem, customer acquisition cost, let alone the lifetime value of that customer uh, wouldn't make economic sense to do that. And there was already an incumbent in that Market, a company called Best Parking, which a lot of people still use today religiously, uh, especially in the New York area. And so uh, we approached them uh, for an acquisition. And so that was my forced first foray into acquiring a company of material size and raising a capital round to sort of fulfill not only our capital needs as a standalone business, but also to use it to acquire a business. And so that was an interesting time and experience. And then integrating that company is very risky, uh, but we were successful and had right key people to help us do that with our investors and otherwise. But um, Uh, Yeah, so that was 2016, in which uh, we now were able to effectively add a major footprint uh, to the overall ecosystem and take advantage of some of the cool things we were doing on the technology front.
0: And so, what's the status of the company today?
1: Yeah, so, you know, fast forward, and like I said, this has been a long journey. Uh, I just sort of dated pretty quickly uh, the prior eight or from 2008 to roughly 2016. And, you know, 2018, I was fairly burnt out. Uh, Most entrepreneurs don't uh, run their business for 10 years, at least uh, venture-backed businesses. And so having the ups and downs of bootstrapping it for the first, you know, five-ish years, and then uh, another five years as a venture-backed company with an acquisition, a material acquisition, and the integration really just, I think it took it out from me. You know, I talked to one of my Venture partners who I was very close with, and he could see it on my face that I was just drained. A lot of the energy, the excitement that I had brought, you know, in 2015, I think the the board could see that I just didn't have it in me anymore. And so, in 2018, I stepped down, moved into a chairman role uh, from the CEO position. We brought on a new CEO. And they, the entire uh, management team did a fantastic job job to position us uh, over the last three years, in which and despite COVID, and COVID was you know nothing anyone could have expected, uh, but for a business like ours who's in mobility, uh, definitely took a big bite out of uh, the entire industry mobility, uh, but definitely affected us in a very material way. Uh, we were fortunate fortunate enough to uh, to get back to some pre-covid levels and have a soft landing spot where we were able to merge with uh, a partner of ours in the hardware space called Flash Parking and I feel extremely bullish that the combined entity uh will really disrupt parking over the next decade uh and and I, and I'm really bullish upon what uh will come next for for the entire organization
0: I always find it fascinating to dig into the history of a company and and You know, understand some of the twists and turns that the, in particular, though, those early days back to 2007 to 2012, where you basically bootstrapped, you know, it it seems like I often find that to get to that real product market fit, if it's fair to say that was kind of what was happening at that time for you. It's always, it seems like it's very hard to predict how long it'll take before that happens. Yep. And the key is to be as capital efficient as possible to get there. I mean, you know, people low burn rate. You have three people, keep trying, keep keep going, and then it seemed like you started getting outside validation from strategics and from investors that what you had was working. Is that a fair assessment of what was happening?
1: Yeah, no question. And, and you know, I don't think we we scripted it that way. I don't think that was necessarily how we walked into the equation. Like I had mentioned earlier, you know, we had set out to raise capital. And not necessarily, to be honest, to be completely transparent, not necessarily for the right reasons. You know, we, when we set out to raise capital, I think we were naive enough. To, we were naive enough to know uh, to start a business that we probably shouldn't have, as most entrepreneurs do which i think is a good thing um, need a little, but we were need a little also, of that
0: naivete yes
1: <laughs> yeah exactly you have to have a little bit of that you got that's like go go back to like you have to have the head just a little bit in the clouds to not know what you're doing enough to 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 change and break the rules but you also have to know what you want to use capital for and i don't think we necessarily at the time knew what we needed capital for because we at the time were focused on events and we could do it without capital it was very Capital efficient, Um, but I will say, you know, when I moved back to the Chicago market, you know, and started even Park was version 1.0, which was a hardware company. You know, at the time, Chicago was known for these bigger companies. Um, The entrepreneurial community that exists today, candidly, didn't exist then. I mean, there were entrepreneurs, fantastic entrepreneurs, Um, but mostly, if you talk to people on the streets, they were working at CPG type companies, the Pepsis of the world, Wrigley's of the world, and when i would approach them whether either through my network or friends of them they didn't even know what an entrepreneur did and so as a result i didn't have the know-how or the sort of ability to connect with people who had it in their dna to sort of operate the way i did in fact i thought there was something wrong with me and but you know while chicago at the time wasn't a major vc player it was a highly tight entrepreneurial community it was a very small entrepreneurial community but among the handful of entrepreneurs that existed they gave me so much, not only passion and energy, but insights into understanding how to build a company. I mean, we're talking about companies, the founders of Open Table, uh, Chuck, uh, the the founders of now Grubhub, Matt and Mike, uh, Groupon and Andrew, uh, Braintree, and Brian Johnson. I mean, we all would get together as a entrepreneurial team for breakfasts. I think it was either every other week or once a month, and we would just talk about uh, problems that we were having, problems with, venture, with the venture community in Chicago, places we could go and reach other investors. But really, it was, it was less about that. It was more about how can we help each other? And that was sort of what I think exists today was sort of my experience of, you know, if I didn't have that, I don't think I would be here today because I probably would have burnt out and would have, have, would have stopped Park was after we got burned by that first investor.
0: Wow. Yeah. That really important aspect of building the community is, is the entrepreneurs themselves
1: connecting. I mean, there, there was only 10 of us. And you look at the combined value of those companies. Today, <laughs> the brain trees yeah. and the grub hubs can drive most of it or in the group ons. But when we're talking, it, it was a fantastic opportunity for me personally to be around you know, people that had, had eventually created billions and billions of dollars in value who at the time had done nothing themselves. I mean, none of these guys were, or, I mean, they might've been entrepreneurial in their nature, but none of them had created, these were all first-time entrepreneurs. And so uh, it, it was a fantastic opportunity for me to, to really soak in their insight and knowledge. Sounds like the common thread was that
0: network. That was a, that was a very special get-together once a month. It was, it um, was. And you also have Alexis uh, uh, from Reddit uh, as a seed investor, right? Yeah. Uh, how, how did that come about?
1: And, yeah, and- so Alexis and I uh, connected, actually, interesting enough, through my co-founder, John. John was living in New York, and John had met Alexis or or, or mem- people close to Alexis. Uh, and Alexis at the time was obviously part of the Y Combinator community. And then he and Gary, Gary Tan, uh, who in his own right is probably one of the top investors uh, in the world today. And you know they we we reached out to, I reached out to Alexis uh, through a soft intro via John and just said hey this is what we're doing and I didn't know it at the time but the reason Alexis was so interested in his in his previous life I don't know if it was high school or college he was a valet attendant and ah. so uh you know the parking problem was near and dear to him and we built a a very good friendship over the years he's been extremely supportive of of everything we've done through today you know he he's not only he's not the kind you know he having been been an entrepreneur I, i've had a lot of investors and 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 been around the board table to me as much as even investors who aren't entrepreneurs can provide tremendous value there's something that you get excited about when you're talking to a former or current entrepreneur and so his uh, understanding of the pain points that i would go through or that we would go through was something you just can't put a value on and so his support over those years was uh, was was tremendous and uh, he was always willing to tweet help us out get get new get new followers and so I'm grateful for just the opportunity and he came into our office once did a town hall with us I asked him questions I mean the the well, I think at the time we had about 100 employees I don't think there was an you know, everyone was glued to every word he had to say because I didn't realize it because you know, millennial generation, uh, but they, you know, they worship everything he has to say. And so, uh, I was pretty popular that day amongst my employees. <laughs> That's awesome. So, she's the um, from that
0: experience that you've had, reflecting on it, thinking about your future. What would you say are your top lessons learned? That you're going to carry with you into your next venture.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, I I made pretty much every mistake you could possibly miss, make as an entrepreneur, and uh, you know, it's funny. The you know, I can tell you one story that you know, now it's in, in retrospect, at least on the corp dev side. And again, this was 2010. Uh, we got approached by eBay. Uh, well, I mean, we were thrilled. We're like, who? Are, what the heck eBay's approaching us to acquire a company? And I did everything you could possibly do to hijack that deal in terms of you know revealing everything to our, our champion in terms of our, our you know what we were doing, the secret sauce to the point where I almost convinced them probably not to make a bid uh, an, an acquisition of us. So you know over the years, I've learned so much about even just having a board. Uh, my first board meeting was a disaster. Um, you know, and I could say that with my former board members could probably attest to that just the way it went. You know, I I only uh, adhered to having a board of one. I I mean, John and I talked all the time, but just just not knowing certain things and the protocols and the ways to conduct yourself and uh, the ways to prepare in advance of those meetings and the metrics that you need to, to have across the entire spectrum, I think those things are things that I I can look back now and laugh. Uh, I I think I'm now at the point I can laugh about them. I probably would cry (laughs) about them before, but I can laugh about it now. And, um, but overall just the people, the connections I've met, uh, you know, amazing people along the way, you know, one, one, you know, we talked about Alexis, but I would say another sort of rock star advisor friend that I was fortunate who gave me some, you know, unbelievable advice that I've I've sort of you know passed it on to you know other aspiring entrepreneurs was uh, you know Dick Costolo and Dick at the time was living in Chicago he um, and his co-founders were had built Feedburner and they had just sold it to Google and they were finishing up their you know uh, their time at Google and I think this was about six months before Dick ended up moving out to the Bay Area to become the CEO of Twitter and Dick was you know dick was the one who you know you know gave me feedback on that first term sheet he in fact told me run away from this term sheet don't sign it i didn't understand any of the terms um i knew none of these terms at at the time there wasn't that much democracy of of understanding you know where to go on the internet to get understand this kind of information and so all of these terms i had my attorney review but attorneys at the time were costing 500 bucks an hour i couldn't afford it and so between my wife, who's you know a lawyer and me, we were trying to decipher all of this. And Dick was able to distill it to me basically in a couple of sentences saying, You don't want to sign this. <laughs> and so yeah. I was grateful for his advice. And he had given me so many other nuggets that I share. You know, he I was actually gonna leave Chicago. My wife and I talked about moving to the Bay Area because we're like, listen, it doesn't seem like uh we can s- survive in Chicago with the community that it currently has from an entrepreneur's perspective. There's not enough venture dollars and we and they they're not interested in what we're building. But Dick said to me, Ashish, if you can't build a startup in Chicago, you can't build it anywhere. Right. I mean, the venture market might be what it is, but at the end of the day, a good business can survive anywhere. And that really meant a lot to me in that it doesn't matter where you are, it matters just how you execute. And um, we obviously stayed in Chicago. And I've taken that advice to others who get caught up in vanity metrics, who get caught up in other things that just aren't relevant to the business. And I say, you got to focus. And so as I think about sort of what's next for me, there's right now I think we're at the frontier of some an inner a very interesting time. Uh, You know, if you think about sort of, I think, um, Chris Dixon has done a phenomenal job of helping people understand at, at Andreessen sort of the phases of where we've gone from Web One to Web Two to sort of the accelerated time frame of Web Two with mobile. And today, I think we're you know embarking on a really cool time at Web Three, if if people accept that word Web Three, are around what crypto is doing and what you know decentralized systems are going to do and how it could potentially flip the heads of all companies. And I think it's, it, 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 it it's, it's always been a good time to be an entrepreneur over the last decade, but I think it's going to be even more phenomenal. And I'm really bullish about where that's going to take me and where that's going to take uh, everyone uh, from this economy. That's terrific. You, you learned a lot, you overcame adversity,
0: which I think is a true sign of a leader and uh, are now able to, Perhaps do it again, but also maybe more importantly, share it with other budding entrepreneurs who I hope are listening to the podcast today to hear some of your stories. Hopefully they can relate to them. Ashish, thank you very much for coming on Fast Frontiers. Hey, Tim, I appreciate it. Thanks again for having me. Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, fastfrontiers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Join us next week when we bring you my conversation with Steve Escaravage, Senior Vice President at Booz Allen. The Fast Frontiers podcast is brought to you by Refinery Ventures. Our producer is Abby Fittis. Audio engineering by Astronomic Audio, and our podcast platform is Casted.